All right. If you want to make your way back to your seat and take out your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ruth. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1 this morning as we start a new series that will take us for the next four weeks through the entire book of Ruth. And this is going to be our Advent series uh, that we walk in together leading up to Christmas. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, it's a Sunday this year, so we're going to have a normal time of a service. Normally we do an evening service on Christmas Eve. We're going to stick with Sunday morning this year, and we'll do a special Christmas Eve service together. But in the four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. It's a small book, uh, and in some ways it's a transitional book. Uh, it's nestled in our Bibles in between the book of Judges and then the book of Samuel, which originally was one book, got broken up because they couldn't fit it all on one page, so now we think it's two, first and second Samuel. It's all one thing. And then you have, tucked in between Judges and Samuel, you have the book of Ruth. And it's a small book. Some people know it as a love story, uh, and in some ways it is. But when you begin to look into what all God is trying to communicate to us through the book of Ruth, it is so much more than that. Um, there's, it's a beautifully written book, and there are so many lessons I think we can pull out of it that point us to Jesus, especially in this time uh, of Advent, of moving towards Christmas, remembering the coming of Christ, looking forward to his second coming. So this week, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read as we go this week, rather than reading the entire chapter uh, to begin with, and, and I think what we'll see as we move through Ruth chapter one is that we can trust that God is working more than what we can see. We can trust that God is working more than what we can see. Ruth chapter one begins like this. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malone and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malone and Chilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Ruth tells us, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, it's during the time of the Judges. And if you're reading through Scripture in order, you've just come out of the book of Judges. And Judges at the very end gives you one verse that summarizes the entire sad 21 chapters. It is the book of Judges. Judges 21-25 says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. And that sums up the entire book of Judges. It was a time of total chaos among the people of God. There was no king. And the pattern that happens throughout Judges is the people wander off into sin and rebellion against God. They cry out to God. God sends someone to redeem them. And they seem to come back until it happens all over again. And it's this spiral downward into total and utter chaos until in Ruth chapter one, during the time of, a judges, of the judges, when there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. And the way that this family responded to a famine was to leave the land. 
Now, if you read the Old Testament, if you read Deuteronomy, the warnings that Moses gave the people, the opportunity for blessing or the warnings of curses, maybe you would read this and say, if there's a famine, they ought not to leave the land. They ought to return in their hearts to God. That should have been the response. But when there's a famine and when there's a problem, this family does what many of us do. How do I fix this? How do I make this right? How do I get by? How do I survive? How do I provide? And instead of turning to God in prayer and in repentance, they turn in on themselves and they say, so how do I fix this problem? And their solution, Elimelech's solution, Naomi's solution, was to say, you know what? There's a problem in this land. Let's go find another land. Let's go to Moab. Let's settle there. I hear there's food there. There's fields we can settle in. Our sons can marry women there. And if you've read the Old Testament up to this point, you know everything that they're doing is contrary to the will of God. They're leaving where God's put them. They're leaving the land God put them in. They're leaving the people God gave them to. And that's the first five verses. It's all about losing our way in desperate times. The times are desperate, but more than just the times are desperate, they lose their way in these desperate times. Look at what happens in these first five verses. First of all, they lose the land. There's a famine in the promised land, which should have never happened. This was supposed to be the land of abundance, but there's a famine. Why? The Old Testament would like us to believe that it's because of the people's unfaithfulness. People's hearts are turned away from the Lord, so they lose the land. But then also, we read that there's a famine, and we know they're not just in the land. They're not just in the promised land. They're in the land of Judah, and more specifically, they're in the city of Bethlehem. Now, our radar should be going off. Our Bible reading antenna should be up, because we know this city. We know this is the city of David, who's going to come in Samuel. We know, eventually, this is the city of Jesus Christ. But in this day... Bethlehem, the word literally means house of bread. So there is no bread in the house of bread. They've lost the land. They've lost the, Beth, the, the, the meaning of Bethlehem. The house of bread has been emptied. They've lost their food. They've lost their way. Instead of the famine driving them to God, it drove them to make their own way. And they left and they tried to make their own life. Now the husband's name, Elimelech, there's a lot of names in this first section. It gives us the name of the husband and wife and their two sons and then the two wives that they take in the land of Moab. And Elimelech's name literally means my God is king. But he's not acting like that. He's acting like I'm king and I've got to figure out a way to provide and I've got to make my own way and I've got to use my own wisdom. I have knowledge of good and evil apart from God and I've got to use it. But then as the verses go on here in the first five verses of Ruth 1, they also lose their sons in this foreign land. They were to be the heirs of Elimelech's household and the caretakers of their widowed mother. So the, they lose their land, they lose the food, they lose their way, they lose the husband Elimelech, he dies. The sons who should have taken care of their widowed mother, then they die. And finally, it's as if they've lost all hope. They lost the better life that they were seeking by leaving the land to begin with. So, it ends in verse 5, where Naomi is not even mentioned by name anymore, but she's just referred to as the woman, because she's lost all sense of identity. She doesn't find an identity in the promised land as God's 
people. She doesn't find an identity as a wife of a husband that has a family. She's not finding an identity as a mother because her sons have died. She's struggling. She's empty. Much like Elimelech and Naomi, I'm wondering if we lose our way when we find ourselves in desperate days. Do we let our desperation drive us to God or, like them, drive us inward on ourselves to try to fix our life on our own? Does our desperation drive us to greater dependence on God or greater independence? I think these first five verses are setting up a really sad time. And chapter one's not gonna get a whole lot better for us. And I think as they're writing this story, even though this is about one particular family, all of Israel, when they read this book and they heard the stories and they, this was orally passed down, they would have been able to say, maybe my grandparents are not Ruth or Naomi or Elimelech. But yeah, my, my family's told stories about that famine before. My, my family has their own stories of what happened during the days of the judges. They know how desperate those days were. So even though this is about one family, we should take this as a common experience for the people of Israel, that these were desperate days, and in these desperate days, God's people lost their way. But in verse six, things seem to take a turn. Here's what God's word says. She, the woman, Naomi, she and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. If the first five verses are about losing our way during desperate days, these next few verses, verses six to 17, are about seeking God when we can't find our way. When we come to our senses and realize we've lost our way, what does it look like to seek God? And we come in contact with three characters. And there begins to be a dialogue, which sort of carries the book of Ruth along, dialogue all throughout these chapters. First, we begin to hear from Naomi. Naomi somehow hears, even though she's in Moab, that the Lord is paying attention to his people. The famine is over. 
Food is again in the land. The house of bread is filled again with bread. So her only hope is to return to the land that she should have really never left in the first place. But she tells her daughters-in-law, if you're going to have any sort of future in life, don't stay with me. You need to stay with your people where you have the best chance of getting married. If you come as single widows to the promised land full of God's people, Israel, you're going to have a hard time finding a husband, and I can't provide that for you. So her invitation to leave her includes a desire that God would bless them in two distinct ways, with kindness and with rest. The word for kindness is the word kesed, covenant loyalty and faithfulness, faithful love. That we see this word all throughout the Old Testament. God's steadfast love, God's faithful love, his loyal love, his faithfulness to the covenant promise he has made to his people. But she tells them, if you want to experience this, you better not come with me. She is so bitter about the way her life has gone that she thinks their only hope to experience the kindness of God is to get as far away from her as possible. Naomi's lost her way in desperate days and it's deeply affected her view of God. And apparently in this passage, she still thinks the best thing about the land is the food that's offered there. Her returning to the land is not motivated by God. It's motivated by the fact that the famine is over. That's the thing that draws her back, not the desperation to say, I've lost my way and I need to return in my heart to God. She says, I've lost my way and we're hungry and don't have families. Hey, there's food in Bethlehem again. Well, I must go back because the Lord's paid attention and the famine's over. So she still thinks the best thing about the land is the food that's offered there. We have a very small bit of information about Orpah, which is her role, short and simple. She does end up going back even through tears, to her homeland. Yeah, you're probably right, Naomi. This is my best shot. So then she's exit stage left, and we don't hear from her again. But then we come in contact with Ruth, the book's namesake. And in verses 14 to 17, we see her admirable faith. While Naomi's not returning to the land because of God, rather Naomi's coming back, it seems like, because the famine's over. There's food. There's provision I'm going to go back. Ruth has a different perspective. Because for Ruth, to have God and nothing else is better than to have everything else and not have God. To have God and have nothing else, which was exactly what Ruth was walking into. Nothing else. No property. They're coming back as widows. Property was passed down through the sons. That's why it was so important that her husband and her sons had died. That's why she's trying to send Ruth away. If you come with me, you're going to have nothing. We are widows. And Ruth is saying, I know. But she's returning to the land, not because the famine's over, not because there's food, not because there's promise of a better life, not because Ruth's trying to find her own way, but listen to what she says. Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. I'm going back with you because I believe Yahweh, the God of that land, the God of that people, is the one true God. Naomi, the Israelite, the one who should have known 
the goodness of God. The one that Moses warned the people in Deuteronomy, don't forget all that you've seen and heard. Keep these stories of God's faithfulness alive so that you don't forget. And your faith in God remains stirred up. Naomi herself had forgotten. And yet a Moabite, not among the people of God, marries into a family that's not even faithfully following Yahweh and becomes convinced that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the one true God. Ruth's statement here seems to be a statement of conversion as she's confessing her allegiance and her faith in the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. And I wonder this morning as we read this confession, I feel like I'd be missing an opportunity if I didn't invite us to make this confession. There may be someone here who's been around the people of God, and maybe you've heard of who God is. Maybe, like Ruth, you've been around people who've claimed the name of Jesus, but have not walked in faithfulness, and it's actually put you off from confessing who God is. Because you say, if God's like that, I don't want anything to do with it. But let me encourage you to be like Ruth. Look through the unfaithful people to the faithful God, and come and make the same Confession, do you need to make this confession? Have you been so convinced that you want to turn from the ways of the world, turn from the gods of this world? That's Naomi's invitation. Go return to your land and return to your gods. And do you want to make this kind of confession that says, you know what? No. I want to come and return to the one true God. I think the other application for us here is, is what we learn about Naomi. If God can use Naomi to lead someone to him, surely God can use us too. Naomi, who's complaining, bitter, full of unbelief, yet the beauty of who God is shines through. And what's happening here, e even without Naomi realizing it, is that by Ruth clinging to Naomi, Ruth becomes Naomi's hope. Because Naomi doesn't have hope of finding another husband. She's much older. But by Ruth coming along with her, if Ruth finds a husband, Naomi finds a place in a family once again. And here we find Ruth, probably never been to the land of promise. Never been to Bethlehem. There's been a famine. Why would she need to return? It, what we learn is when they return, all the townspeople begin to say to themselves, is this Naomi? Is she back? So Ruth's probably never been. And here's Ruth clinging to God, clinging to a bitter old mother-in-law, having no idea what all God's about to do. So in desperate days, at times when they've lost their way, we see in Ruth an example of incredible faith. She doesn't know all the ways that God's about to provide for her, and she doesn't care because God is still worth following for her even if she doesn't know how he's going to provide for her. If that's not a lesson for us today, I don't know what is. This pretty well sums up the whole season of Advent for us. It's a time of waiting, longing, and anticipating for Jesus to come and embracing the tension of living between the two comings of Jesus. 
We don't know when Jesus is going to return, how he's going to put everything back perfectly together. We don't know how he's going to redeem the world. We don't know when he's going to come and make all things right again. But we live in the tension of saying, I'm following you even though I don't understand everything. So in verses 6 to 17, we see what it's like for people who've lost their way to seek God again. And we have this juxtaposition. Naomi seems to be returning to the land because the famine's over. For her, the best thing about the land is that there's food in it. That's always been her motivation. That was her motivation to leave, and that's her motivation to return. But for Ruth, something has changed. Her motivation is, I think there's something to this God. Even if there's no husband, even if there's no family, I think there's something to this God. And I need to go. I need to cling to Naomi. And Naomi's not exactly thrilled about it. (laughs) When Naomi saw, this is verse 18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. (laughs) Not exactly encouraging. Not exactly a celebration. Well, good, I'm not going to be alone on this journey back. Good, I won't be alone when I arrive back in my hometown of Bethlehem. Good, I'll have someone in my misery with me. She just turns and goes, starts walking. So we see in Ruth and Naomi two different responses as they're seeking a good life. Naomi's hoping to get it through husbands and a land that's not in famine. But Ruth seems to be convinced of who God is. The last section, verses 18 to 22, is not about us seeking God when we've lost our way, but about God seeking us. These last verses bring a conclusion to the chapter. This is where we can begin to notice how beautifully written this book is. The story started and ended in Bethlehem. It started with a famine, and it ends, in verse 22, with a harvest. It began with a woman named named Naomi, which that name means pleasant, and it ends with her changing her name to Mara, which means bitter. She says she went away in the beginning of the chapter full, and she's come back at the end of the chapter empty. This chapter is is coming together as a whole, right? And in Naomi's eyes, it started on a high and ended very low. But in verse 21, she attributes three things to God. She's saying not only was she full and came back empty, she's saying it's the Lord who brought her back empty. Then she says, the Lord has opposed me. And then she says, the Almighty has afflicted me. She never got the better life that they were looking for in Moab, Through the death of her husband and her sons, she never got the better life of peace and prosperity that they were looking for. And now she feels that it's God's fault. God's hand must be against her. Now this might not sound hopeful at all, but notice what's here. First of all, even in all of her complaining and bitterness, she acknowledges that God's at work. This is the confusing mix of what biblical lament is all about. We find it in the Psalms. We find it scattered throughout the Old Testament. There's an entire book written by Jeremiah called Lamentations that's bringing our complaints to God and it's talking about how miserable and awful our life is and God, why don't you wake up and do something? But mixed in there is the confusion of the fact that you're also acknowledging God's listening to you because you're praying to him. She acknowledges that God's at work. If you're gonna lose everything, isn't it better for God to be there with you than for you to be there alone? But the second thing we see in these attributions to God And she doesn't acknowledge this. 
But the author tells us in verse 22, it's the beginning of barley harvest. This chapter started with a famine, and that was meant to trigger our minds into desperate days. Things are not good. Things are not easy. Things are not prosperous. But by the author telling us, it's the beginning of harvest. The author is trying to end this section on a note of hope. Things are not as they were at the beginning of the chapter. Things are going to make a turn and get better. Naomi might not like the situation she's in. She might not be comfortable, but she's in the exact position for God to work. Think about how God called Abram from a distant land while he was childless at the end of his life. Think about how God worked while Joseph was in prison in Egypt. Think about how God called his people out of slavery in Egypt. And now he's working even in the details of the life of a widow. Naomi doesn't see how all God's working. Ruth doesn't see how all God's working. Yet God is at work. And we'd be missing a golden opportunity if we didn't also mention we find ourselves at another important place in Scripture where we have an important female character who is childless without the possibility of bearing children. Now, it doesn't say that she's barren, but her reason for being unable to have children is that she doesn't have a husband. So children are not possible for her. If only God had a track record of fixing that problem, starting in Genesis all the way through to our Lord in the New Testament. So God seems to be at work seeking Ruth and Naomi, providing for Ruth and Naomi. What we'll find at the end of Ruth is that God, through them, is going to bring about King David. But they don't know that at the time. They have no idea what's happening. Remember, they're just trying to escape famine for Naomi, or uh, Ruth is trying to say, I'm casting my lot in with this God. He is the one true God. And they find themselves in a desperate, helpless place where God is at work in ways that they don't realize. We've been watching at home uh, Downton Abbey, and at our men's night a couple weeks ago, I surrendered my man card for watching this uh, right after Kevin offered me a Shirley Temple in his basement. And so, um, so it's just, it's out, we watched Downton Abbey, and I like it. Uh, I like it. Thank you very much. There's, uh, it's a fascinating time, and to consider it's not that long ago, uh, about a hundred years ago. Uh, This is the life that they're portraying, right? And to watch the characters interact is is fascinating. Um, Some of these characters are very complex, and there's things about some of them that you love, and there's things about the same characters you go, this is just so horrific and wrong, and major character flaws. But there's one character that they just kind of put in there that you just have a heart for, and it's, it's Mr. Bates, John Bates, if you've watched the show. And he comes in as, as uh, he's been injured through war, and he's, he's close with uh, Mr. Crawley, who's the lord of the house, of the estate. And at first, none of the other servants really like him, but he's kind of innocent the whole time. Like, they, like, they don't like him for no reason. They don't like him because he's close to the guy in power. They think he's not good at his job because he's hurt. Over time, you realize this guy is put here with no flaws. Uh, he's put here, he acknowledges flaws at earlier parts of his life, but he's just put here for you to just like him. Uh, he, he falls in love with Anna, uh, one of the maids, and they have this beautiful love story, but, but in Mr. Bates' past, he's got uh, a wife that's horrific, and it, it kind of feeds into his backstory where he just, he's not always the loving man you see on screen now. 
So long story short, his previous wife takes her own life and frames him for murder. He finds himself in jail. And it's just another one of these things. You feel bad for Mr. Bates. And you go, he's, he's a good guy now. Why are these bad things keep happening? There's plenty of other bad people that these bad things can be happening to. And you just, for episodes, watch him in jail realizing he has no clue what else is going on on the outside. He's writing letters and having maybe weekly visitation with his new wife, Anna. He has no idea what's going on on the outside. Meanwhile, on the outside of prison, Anna is working ferociously to prove his innocence. She's tracking down leads. She is reading old journals. Every spare minute she gets, she's going and trying to interview people who could have seen this wife and try to prove that he didn't really take Vera's life. He's innocent. She's working hard, and he's sitting here day in and day out weaving baskets and bags and not allowed to talk at mealtimes. He has no idea all that's being done on the outside to prove his innocence. He hears in letters, and he hears when they meet once in a while. But then there's a season where he doesn't even get letters. One of the guards is mad at him. He gets no letters for a long season. He gets nothing. And he begins to wonder, did she finally turn her back on me? Did she finally acknowledge, I'm guilty, I'm going to be in here forever, and she's leaving me? And then he realizes, no. Somebody tells him, no, these guards are mad. They've been keeping your mail. And he smiles. And it's so frustrating because you want him to be mad. You want him to be mad that they're keeping the letters. You want him to be angry at the guard. But he smiles and he says, she didn't give up. She still loves me. And his picture in jail where he can't do anything to help his situation, he's totally unaware of what's happening outside. He can't even get updates from the infrequent letters he's getting. Yet he smiles because he knows there's someone out there who loves him, who's doing all sorts of things he doesn't realize on his behalf. And I just realized he's sitting in prison totally helpless. That's very much like what Ruth and Naomi are doing, sitting in Bethlehem, helpless. And they don't realize all that God's doing around them to orchestrate this beautiful story of how he's gonna send a redeemer to marry Ruth and redeem the family and redeem the land and have children. And they have no idea. So as we come to the end of Ruth chapter one, the question that God's putting forth to us is, can we trust him even when we don't see what he's doing? Al, who was the pastor here for five years and I got to serve with him, he in one sermon had this like most quotable thing he's ever said to me. He said, uh, while he was preaching, when you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Ruth and Naomi are a place where they cannot trace the hand of God. They cannot see exactly what God is up to. But Ruth seems to trust the heart of God. Your God will be my God. And so for us this Christmas season, when we can't trace the hand of God, we're in the middle of a story that God is writing for us and we have no idea what he's doing. We can't see how it's all gonna work out. We can't see how things are gonna lead to the life we wished we had. Can we trust the heart of God that he might be doing thousands of things around you and for you right now, and you might know one or two of them. And Ruth chapter one is trying to show us he cares about the details, even of an unfaithful widow who fled the land when she shouldn't have. He is active in her life, and he's active in yours. He is working for your good. He does see you. He does know you. He does love you. 
He is at work in the details of your life, whether you realize it or not. And he's inviting you to trust him and to love him, not to figure everything out. And what we'll see over the next couple chapters is how God begins to reveal his plan, invite Ruth into it, invite Naomi into it, and Naomi begins to wake up to what God's doing. And as we journey towards Christmas, we're going to be in this tension of the season, which is, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we need you. But we don't see what all you're doing in the waiting. And the prayer from Ruth 1 is, God, show us how to be faithful in the waiting when we don't see what all you're doing. Let's pray.